Hey everyone, there is some strong language in today's episode, including a couple of F-bombs. I've not beeped anything out, so I thought I should let you know about it beforehand. Hey everybody, just a reminder that at PeteBrownSays.com there's a submit page where I post a prompt and you're invited to submit responses. There's a record button right on the page, you just click it, record your response and it gets sent right to me. Right now I've got a prompt up for an episode upcoming in Season 2. It's all anonymous, and I'd love to hear your stories. So check out PeteBrownSays.com and click Submit. Good times. Hi everybody, this is Pete. It is the time between Christmas and New Year's, and this is bonus episode number 11. When I planned the 10 episode first season of the podcast, I legitimately thought that there was a chance that my download numbers would be in the tens. But I promised myself if I found a small audience that I would do a bonus episode that would share some insights on what I learned producing the first season of the podcast and share a story as well. And it occurred to me, too, that not all of my listeners work in digital communications and may not be super interested in my analysis of podcast metrics, Facebook campaigns, influencer marketing. So I'm going to share the story first. It's a story that I wrote very recently and I think is thematically appropriate for the holiday season. And if you're so interested, stick around after the story to hear some insights on the first season of the podcast and some thoughts on what may be upcoming in season two. If you're someone who celebrates holidays at this time of year, I hope they were great and that you're doing well. So let's get to the story. This is season one, episode 11, a bonus episode entitled Stop Hitting Yourself. If you have an older sibling or had to ride a school bus with a bunch of older kids, I'm guessing you might have had this experience. An older kid starts messing with you, then grabs you by the wrist and proceeds to make you slap your own face with your hand repeatedly while chanting, Why are you hitting yourself? Huh? Stop hitting yourself. Slap. Stop hitting yourself. Slap, slap. You keep hitting yourself. Slap. Why you hitting yourself is a well-worn bullying trope. It's one that still makes me cringe, even as I write this. And also, for me at least, it describes to a T what I feel whenever I go to Costco. If you don't know, Costco, it's a massive store that calls itself a warehousing club. You pay an annual membership fee currently $120, I think, for the privilege of shopping there. And it is very much like shopping in a massive warehouse, one stuffed full of just about everything under the sun and more. And everything is bigger at Costco. Everything, from the shopping carts, which are like Hummers when compared to a grocery store's Mini Coopers, to the numbers with which familiar items are packaged. Here's an example. I can go to the grocery store and buy a box of fruit roll-ups to put in my kids' lunches. There's probably 12 fruit roll-ups in the box, and I probably pay about 2 or $3. At Costco, the fruit roll-ups run 60 to a box, and two boxes are shrink-wrapped together into one saleable package for $11.99. But for me, nothing symbolizes Costco better than its pies. Yeah, apple pies, pecan pies, pumpkin pies. They're like the huge, roided-out older brother of a grocery store pie. I'm guessing they're at least 18 inches across and clock in, and I'm not making this up, at 75 ounces. That's almost five pounds each. Now, in my experience, whenever we have pie at a family function, invariably, most people say, just a small piece, please. I don't know how you could fulfill such a request with a Costco pie. 
There is nothing small about it. I actually believe that in a pinch, you could use a Costco pie as a spare tire to get you to the nearest gas station. Here's another thing I've noticed about our Costco. It's always crazy busy. It's a madhouse on the weekends, except if there's a Buckeye game on, in which case it is not crowded for the few hours the Buckeyes are playing. But I've also tried to beat the crowds by popping in in the middle of the week during lunch, and it's just as crowded. And here's the thing I want to say about Costco. I think if you're a very planful person and have discipline to stick to your plans, Costco probably makes a lot of sense to you financially. You can probably estimate your yearly toilet paper needs and then save money buying it in bulk from Costco. Same goes with coffee, rice, light bulbs, and other staples. And while I do a serviceable job planning and executing digital strategies in my work life, I'm just not a good enough planner to make Costco pay off, nor is my family disciplined enough to make it work. A simple example, I buy a box of 60 individually wrapped Rice Krispie treats, thinking these will serve as desserts and my kiddos' lunches for six weeks. I have two kids, so two treats a day, five days a week. That's 10 treats a week. Hence, we're covered for six weeks. See, I can do math. But the reality is that I buy a box of 60 individually wrapped Rice Krispie treats, and over the course of the next two days, my family and I eat them all, and not one of them serves its purpose as a bag lunch dessert. For us, Costco is not a replacement for the grocery store in any way. It's an in addition to. It's some unstated excuse to go bonkers eating shit. But still, every time I'm there, I'm doing the math in my head, trying to see how long six gallons of soy milk will last, for example, and if I have a place to store it. You see, Costco is one of those places where everything, and I mean everything, just seems like it's a great deal. And you will always be surprised by what ends up in your cart and then makes its way home. Three pounds of dried goji berries? I didn't even know I needed them. There's only about seven weeks left in the year as I write this. And so I found myself this past week determined to make the Costco relationship pay off. Because I needed tires on my Prius. And tires is something that Costco sells. And I noticed in a mailer they send us every few weeks that they were running a Thanksgiving week sale on them. Finally, a sure thing, a way to make Costco pay. And by the way, before this story goes on, has anyone ever in the entire history of the wheel ever uttered the sentence, what a great experience I had buying tires today? I don't think so. No. Tires are one of those items we have to buy by engaging with this shady network of tire guys. You walk up and you tell them what kind of car you have, and then they type on their computers for five minutes and say stuff like, I can set you up with T230s at 89 each. That's a 50,000 mile tire. The f*** am I supposed to do with this information? T230s? Are those good? Are they bad? Are they pink and yellow polka dotted? Are they better than T231s? Are there T231s? I mean... I don't read tire monthly. I just want a good quality tire that's going to last. I can barely understand what differentiates the models. So my brain seizes on the one thing in that sentence that I do understand. 50,000 miles. Which sounds like a lot of miles. Sounds like about five years worth of tire. So I'll, I'll follow up with a question like, is that a good tire? And then the tire guy will say, oh yeah, yeah, it's a decent tire. And often he will say something like, I put T230s on my wife's car. I don't mean to be sexist here. I've just never bought tires from a woman. Not because I won't buy tires from a woman. I certainly would. I just, I've never run into a woman who sells tires. I'm sure they're out there. 
So he says, yeah, I put T-230s on my wife's car. And then I say, okay, because, you know, if they're good enough for his wife, they got to be good enough for me. And then he'll start typing again for what seems like an unnecessarily long time. And then tell me how much everything is, including installation, balancing, aligning, rotating, and disposing of the old tires. And suddenly, the price seems to have doubled. I've always wondered why they line item out every little task involved and seems to me should be one job that should cost, in total, 50 bucks. If tire sellers just said, installation for four tires costs 50 bucks, nobody would care what the line items were. We'd be happy to pay it. 50 bucks seems like a fair price for putting four tires on my car. But instead, they're vying for 30 to 40 bucks per tire, and then they're adding on every tiny little thing they can. Hell, some of them will even charge you for something called nitrofill, which means they're charging you to fill the tire with nitrogen instead of regular air, which, by the way, is 78% nitrogen. But who's counting? F***ing tire salesman. If you get out of there paying less than 600 bucks, then you're a better man than me. And then, once you suck it up and say okay, then they want to sell you a warranty on the tires. Now again, there are probably people in the world who can buy and take advantage of warranties on items. I am not one of them. Even when I have bought warranties, I never remember them, even if I need them later. I have no system for storing them. I'm basically throwing 50 extra bucks away. And they make it seem like it's so easy to use your warranty when they're selling it to you. They're like, hey, anything happens, you drop in, just bring it in, no questions asked, and we'll replace it. They always say that, no questions asked. Like if I don't buy the warranty, I'm going to have to face some sort of tire inquisition where I have to account for every little thing that's happened to the tires. But buy the warranty, and they make it seem like they're going to throw you a surprise party when you come in with a warrantied item that needs repair or replacement. Like the clerks and everyone will start wildly high-fiving you and celebrating how smart you were to buy the warranty in the first place. My wife buys warranties, and I need to admit, one time it paid off on a washer-dryer. But I'm just not organized enough for warranties. One time, I bought the warranty on a set of tires, and a few months later, I had a flat from driving over a nail, and I brought the tire in and had to have it replaced, all the while forgetting entirely that I had bought the warranty. And you know what? Tire guy never even brought it up. All that fucking typing they do on their computers, and not a fucking peep. Nope. Hey, it says you bought the warranty. Good on you, Petey boy. I realized I'd bought the warranty a few months later when I found it in that weird folded paper folder thing that warranties and rental car contracts seem to come in. And then I called him back and I asked why I'd been charged for the replacement tire when I had bought the warranty. And he said, we don't know if you have the warranty. You have to bring it in to us. So yeah, I hate buying tires. And I strongly and inherently distrust tire salesmen. And for the record, I'm also a little bit uncertain about the British since they spell tire with a Y. But from now on in, I'm going to pass on the warranty. Even though when I pass on the warranty, the tire guy will shake his head in disappointment and then say, All right, well, good luck to you. So Costco's got a sale on tires, and I'm doing the math in my head. And it seems to me that even with pure nitrogen fill, I'm going to get a new set of 80,000-mile tires for under 400 bucks. And that alone is worth the entire annual fee Costco charges for the right to shop there. And guess what? It checks out. I tell the guy at the tire counter what kind of car I have. He looks everything up and boom, $368 installed. The only hitch is that they're backed up on installations. So I agree to bring the car in the next day. And 
Since I was already at Costco and everything, I decided to take a spin around the warehouse. I mean, the holidays were coming up and all, right? Somehow, I ended up spending $155 on things I didn't know I needed, including a case of protein drinks, 60 Rice Krispie treats, of course, 500 fish oil tablets, which I once heard were good for your heart, and so on. I tell myself that the math on all of these things works out. But deep inside, I'm thinking, why are you hitting yourself, huh? Stop hitting yourself. The next day, I drop the car off with my wife. And since we're already there and all, we take a spin through the store together, where we spend another 80 bucks on things we didn't know we needed, including a set of serving bowls, two massive jars of pickled beets and garlic-stuffed onions, and 32 ounces of hummus. It's a lot of hummus. A few hours later, I get a voicemail from the tire guy at Costco. In it, he says they accidentally sold me the wrong size tires. 15s, when I need 16s. 15 or 16 what? He doesn't say. Inches? Pounds? Millimeters? I have no clue. Then he says he has to order the 16s, so it'll take three to four days to get them in. And also, they cost more. $170 more, to be exact. Oh, and the 16s are only rated for 60,000 miles. I explain this to my wife as she drives me back to Costco, because even though it feels like I'm getting rolled here, I really don't want to have to restart the entire tire buying process over again at some other joint. And even though it costs more than I wanted and it's less convenient, I'm, I'm just so tempted and so inclined to just say, fine. My wife, who has never had to buy tires, by the way, disagrees. She strongly disagrees. She then references two well-known hard asses in our life, her dad and our old neighbor, Luba, neither of whom, she says, would let them get away with this shit, and both of whom, she says, will get the right tires at the price they originally paid. She speculates that Luba might even get a discount. What she doesn't say, in words or out loud, that is, but lurking beneath her tirade is this. Be a fucking man about it. Step up and make them eat their shit. And I sigh, and I decide I'll see what I can get worked out at the Costco tire counter. As always, Costco is a madhouse when we arrive. And as I go to get in line at the tire counter, my wife heads off into the warehouse, pushing one of those giant carts. It takes about 15 minutes to get to the front of the tire counter line. And when I explain who I am, the tire guy asks if I got his voicemail and if he should order the new tires. Now wait a minute, I say. I don't understand how the same tire, one size up, costs so much more money. And then, to bring my point home, I say... I mean, a large shirt is usually the same price as a medium shirt, right? Let me check, the tire guy says. And then he spends close to six minutes typing. What the hell are they writing about in their tire computers? Are they IMing their wives, who allegedly have these same tires on their cars? Hey, hun, this dweeb is here at the counters giving me a hard time about the T230s. Can you believe it? SMH, FML. Finally, he looks up and says... I don't know why they cost more. We just put in the specs and Michelin sends us the price. Ah, the old blame Michelin excuse. I know it well because I've worked for several software companies where the same gambit is called blame Microsoft. I take a deep breath. So you sold me a set of tires, I say. And now you want me to pay $170 more for your mistake and for tires that are rated for 20,000 fewer miles. 
Yes, the tire guy says, and don't forget it'll be a few days before they're in. Now I don't know what my wife's father or my old neighbor Luba would do at this moment. Grab the guy by the shirt and pull him in close to threaten him? Ask to talk to another manager? Continue to plea their case? Box his ears? Have a conniption? Fake a heart attack? Okay, that last one, faking a heart attack, is technically called a Fred Sanford, and neither my father-in-law nor my former neighbor Luba would ever stoop to it, which is a thought I have just before I start thinking, I'm coming, Elizabeth, I'm coming. Oh, it's the worst one, this is a big one. I'm dying. You hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. Sir, the tire counter guy brings me back to reality. Sir, am I ordering these 16s or what? No, I want my money back, I say. This is bullshit. Once I request my money back, I have to move to the returns and exchanges line, which is crazy busy at the moment. I wait another 15 minutes, and once we get the return going, the return lady asks me things like, was there anything wrong with the tires? I'm not sure how to answer that, I say. I never saw them. Then she tells me, that for some reason, because I paid with a MasterCard and not a Visa, that they can only give me store credit. Why you're hitting yourself, huh? You keep hitting yourself. I'm a bit incredulous at this information. Every other store in the known universe credits returns back to the card you bought them with. But apparently, Costco hasn't cracked this technology as yet, or at least has only cracked it for the Visa card holders of the world. I'll take cash, I say. And a few minutes later... With $368 in my pocket, I head off to find my wife, who has a cart full with another $150 worth of things we didn't know we needed, including a five-pack of nightlights, a case of 16-ounce bottles of root beer, a pair of pajamas, what, and 200 dog bones. So to recap, in my efforts to get a new set of tires at a reasonable price, $368 in this case, I ended up spending $385 on other stuff. And I now have $368 in cash in my pocket, and I'm no closer to getting new tires on the Prius than I was three days ago. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Why do you keep hitting yourself? Now, you may be thinking, and you probably should be thinking, hey, he didn't have to buy all this stuff every time he was there on the tire project. How can Costco be the bully when, really... They're just the location, am I right? And in some ways you are, but the thing about bullies is that they've got the upper hand until you choose to stand up to them, to set your feet and stare down their giant pies and their 32-ounce containers of hummus and say simply, but confidently, no more. So Costco, I'm afraid we need to break up. And let me be clear, it's not me, it's you. The tires were a deal breaker, a last, desperate chance to make this relationship work, like an on-the-rocks couple adopting a dog from the pound. Your giant carts and shrink-wrapped two packs of fish oil and massive, massive pies, well, it's just not working out the way we had hoped. Also, I would like to return this bottle of 500 fish oil tablets. For cash, please.
Okay, I hope you enjoyed that story. In case you're wondering, it's after Christmas and before New Year's, and I still have not gotten new tires on the Prius, uh, which is actually a bit concerning because that's the car my 16-year-old son occasionally drives. I've held off letting him drive it in the bad weather. And to be honest, it legitimately needs new tires. But the holidays hit. I spent that cash on gifts for the kids, and now I'm just waiting to get into the new year until a new payday comes around and I can start this whole process over. And if you're a tire salesman, I apologize if I've offended you or besmirched your profession. But you do have to admit, it seems rife with shady characters pulling skeevy deals. If anyone out there knows a better way for me to buy tires, I'm all ears. Hit up the contact form at PeteBrownSays.com. Tweet at me at PeteBrownSays. Or hit the submit page and record your story. Thanks, everybody. Okay, hope you enjoyed that story. So for season one of the podcast, as I put out the episodes, I tried different promotional strategies. For a few episodes, I boosted posts on Facebook where you pay them some money and they have your post about the podcast appear in the news feeds of your friends and friends of friends, sort of an expanded network. I also tried some Facebook ads at one point. I did some influencer marketing with some Twitter influencers who posted about the podcast. And what I was able to conclude, at least given the lower numbers of downloads for my podcast, which just went over 2,000 downloads, I could make absolutely no conclusions. Some of the episodes that I didn't boost or promote or do any paid promotion at all for did very, very well. Other episodes that I did boost and promote uh, didn't do as well. And there was no rhyme or reason to it. And I think that's because podcasts as a medium really spread by word of mouth. And think about I think about how I get turned on to new podcasts. It's friends and colleagues who listen to podcasts who are like, hey, you should check this out. That's why early on I was asking people for iTunes reviews. And the theory there is if you get a certain number of iTunes reviews in a short amount of time, that increases the odds that Apple will feature you under their new and noteworthy section on Apple Podcasts. But I knew there was no way I was going to get enough reviews to make that happen. So instead, I've just been asking people to share the podcast with a friend. Maybe text them a link to one of the episodes. I think for a small podcast, that's probably the best way it's going to grow. Word of mouth. The most popular episode of season one was episode three, Two Lies and a Truth. A story about a game ball that I found and brought me back to my Little League days. And just behind that was episode two, I Are Smart. Episode two is one of my favorites just because um, it was the first it was the first episode that I wrote when I decided to put out a podcast. Now, it's perhaps not a fair apples to apples comparison, right? But in the past, when I've had an essay that I've written uh, for no apparent publication or I don't have a lead on where to place it, I would publish it on Medium. And Medium.com was kind of perfect for that because I didn't have really enough content to start my own blog and I didn't want to build a brand around that. But when I had something to say, I could use Medium. The essays that each episode were based on were also posted on Medium. And there's really no comparison between what got them more exposure. The podcast averaged around 200 downloads for each one. Uh, and on Medium, we got maybe 10 views. Now, I didn't actually promote the Medium links at all, so those 10 views may come from people who had already followed me in the past. But I still think my theory about short, creative, nonfiction essays being a better fit with podcasting is, is holding some water. 
the least popular episode I had was called I Become That Dad, and it was about youth soccer. And what's interesting is, although it had the lowest number of downloads, it generated the most email from listeners. I guess everybody has pretty strong feelings about youth sports, and something about that episode uh, convinced quite a few people to, to reach out and share them with me. The other episode that generated a lot of listener email was Three Drinks at the Turn, which was about my experiences working one summer as a caddy when I was 14. And quite a few of the people who reached out had the same question, which was, uh, did I go to work that day? That episode ends uh, one morning when, with a bit of a standoff between my dad and myself about working at the country club. And that's where I chose to, to conclude it. So, because so many people asked, I will say yes, I did go to work that day. My dad took a moment to gather what was going on, told me to pull myself together and come downstairs and have breakfast. And then I think he actually drove me in that day. I ended up working about another three weeks at the country club after that until cross country started and I stopped working there. And I was, I was so eager to stop working there that the first week of cross country practice, I ran in Chuck Taylor's because those were the sneakers I had. The other thing I learned with that episode, Three Drinks at the Turn, that was pretty important is that with podcasts, unlike software, you have to get it right the first time. So what happens is you publish your episode to your server, it goes out on your RSS feed, and then that's what pulls it into Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Stitcher and TuneIn and everywhere your podcast is. Well, with this episode, the first version of the file went out had a mistake in it. And the mistake was, in my first recording, I declined to name the country club that I worked at, where all these things happened. And then my wife, who kind of pre-listens to the episodes for me, said, you should name the country club. And I was like, ah, you know, country clubs might be litigious. I don't, I don't want to get in trouble. And she said, if they contact you, we will get a lawyer and fight them because they don't get to win. Not this time. And she was so passionate about it that I agreed, and I recorded some pickups where I said the name of the country club. The final edits of these podcasts typically happen uh, between 11 at night and 1 in the morning. It's just the only time I really have to work on them. So that night I, I was putting in the new pickups. I was doing a couple other things to the episode. I got it done, I exported it, and I published it. Well, one of my listeners is a very good friend of mine, Lothar, and he listens as soon as they come out. So it was at 7 in the morning he texted me and said, hey, there's something going on in this one part. And what it was, was where I had neglected to name the name of the country club and where I named it were both in the episode, kind of playing on top of each other. So it sounded like this. You're late, he shouted. You're late. You need he to shouted. get up and get over to... You need to get up and, and get over to Westwood. Country club. So I quickly fixed it, and I updated the file. But here's the thing. The first time you put that file up, everybody who subscribed, if as soon as their device is on, they start downloading the file. So about 39 of my listeners, and I apologize to you if you were one of them, got the version of the file that had the, the mix-up in it. And of course, once I put the new one up, I had to start tweeting saying, hey, there was a, a weird glitch in the original file. If you downloaded it, please delete it and download the new one. So lesson learned, even though it was one in the morning, you got to be sure that that file is right when you put it up. Throughout the season, I had about, I had about 30 people who made submissions in response to prompts on PeteBrunsets.com on the submit page. I really do think this is going to be an important feature of the show. So even though that's not a lot, I'm keeping it going. There's a new prompt up there now. If you go to PeteBrunsets.com, click submit. There's a record button right there on the page. You click it, you record it with your computer's microphone, and it comes right to me. So do check it out. 
Finally, just a, a few thoughts on season two in the writing I've been doing. Season one was really all personal narratives, all stories from my life. And in season two, I think I'm going to expand that and I'll start telling uh, other stories that have been interesting to me. So there'll be a lot more interviews, pulling things together. There'll still be personal narrative essays, but not all episodes, at least as I have them sketched out right now, will do that. I suspect, although I don't know, but I suspect that some of these episodes are going to take more time to put together than when, when it's just a personal essay narrative. It's just me. I can record pickups whenever I need. I do the editing whenever I have to. So it's possible. I'm toying with season two coming out every other week. So instead of a week, 10 episodes in 10 weeks, it'd be 10 episodes in 20 weeks. And my guess is that I will start season two sometime in the first week of February. In case you're curious, about 73% of my listeners are listening on an iOS device another 11% on Android. After the U.S., France is the next biggest country for downloads, followed by Argentina, Germany, the U.K., the Ukraine, and Uruguay. And not surprisingly, within the U.S., most of my downloads, about half of them, come from Ohio. And the second largest state is Michigan. It just passed Illinois last week to take second. So, And that's about all the uh, metrics I have. Those are the lessons learned. Please feel free to reach out to me with any feedback that you might have. You can use the contact form at PeteBrownSays.com. You can tweet at me at PeteBrownSays. And you can leave a review on iTunes if you like. But as I said, I really think the small audience that I'll be able to build for this show uh, will generally be built by word of mouth. So if you got friends that you think just like quirky, funny narratives, none of the episodes in season one are time sensitive. They'll all hold up for a long time. So pick an episode, tweet out a link or text a link to someone you think might like it. And I think one listener at a time will grow. I want to thank everybody who's listened. This was a big experiment. Uh, It was an important creative outlet for me at this time in my life. And I'm really looking forward to continuing to do some interesting things. Okay, that's it. I hope everyone has a very happy new year. And as always, good times. Pete Brown Says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. Some music in the show comes from Brian Hake and Kevin Davison, and the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by their band, Delicious. Other audio may have been sourced from the websites audionautics.com, incompetech.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. Most pieces are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes at PeteBrownSays.com for complete attribution. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And as always, thanks for your time listening today. Good times, everyone. This prompt is different than what your email says the prompt is about. What the f***?
Brown.